Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat and today with me is Lindsay Murdoch who has just been awarded an Order of Australia Medal for Services to Journalism, his contribution over more than 40 years. Lindsay, welcome to the program and I guess under protocol I'll have to address you as Your Excellency. Uh, no, not not really Luke, but good, good to be with you. Indeed. You've spent 40 years covering Australia and Southeast Asia, much of that time was in Asia. You've seen the way these countries were 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. How do you see them stacking up now? We're in a very different era. Perhaps post-COVID is going to bring in the new realities. Where do you think the region is heading? Well, the region at the moment, the word on everybody's list is China. China, China, China. And all of these countries have a relationship with China, which is going to dictate how the region looks over the next decade. Right. I mean, there's big issues with China, China, Japan, China, Taiwan, China, or the Southeast Asia countries. Hong Kong. Um, Ch- Hong Kong, China, Australia. I mean, that's going to be the big story. And to be honest, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. I mean, China's flexing its muscles diplomatically. It's been very assertive. It's uh, been very blunt. You know, its relations with countries like Australia, Japan, the United States, they're all sort of at a point where we're not sure exactly where it's going. And COVID is, is the other element that's the big unknown, how when these countries across the region start coming out of COVID, how they're going to go. I think there probably will be an economic resurgence once, you know, people, a majority of people gets vaccinated and this thing, COVID is beaten. But it's... Um, Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's going to be a long road and it's a very expensive road for these countries. And we're still seeing COVID surging in Indonesia, Thailand, yep. Cambodia, Malaysia, Philippines. Indeed. Um, these countries have been just absolutely smashed. So it's going to take some time to recover. Right. And, and yet the other day, General Prayut, the Prime Minister of Thailand, came out and said that his country will open up within 120 days. Do you think that's possible? I think it's going to be very difficult for Thailand. You mentioned 150 days. That's been met with a lot of uh, scepticism. Tourism was one of the biggest money earners for Thailand, and they're really suffering without it. Right, as is Cambodia. Yeah, Yeah. Cambodia as well, yeah. Well, I think Cambodia, Laos, and a lot of these other countries rely on uh, Thailand to bring in the tourists. Uh, Most tourists from Europe or Australia, America, they tend to fly into Bangkok first, and it's not shaping up well. It's a long haul for Thailand's tourism industry and the impact of it is filtering right down to the village level. So many people work in the tourism sector and they just haven't had jobs and a lot of them yep. have gone back to the villages. But friends living in Thailand say that it really is a tough time for the Thais at the moment. Right. Next year, Cambodia is going to be hosting uh, ASEAN. It takes over the rotating chair. One of the issues I'm told they're going to be pushing forward is admitting East Timor to the uh, trade bloc. Do you think that's feasible, given its history? And also bearing in mind that you were in uh, East Timor during the great carnage of the late 1990s. Do you think a country like East Timor is ready and that it's 
political relationship, its dynamics, say, with countries ranging from Portugal to Australia, do you think it's feasible that Dili should be admitted to uh, the Asian trade bloc? I think there's a lot of goodwill for Timor-Leste across the region, and you know a lot of these countries would like to see East Timor join ASEAN. Mm-hmm. But the problem in the past has been the uh, mechanics of it. East Timor is, just doesn't have the institutions that are foreign affairs departments and the other departments that are needed to have input into the many, many meetings and right. and policy forums and you know security dialogue, all those sort of things, which member states have to participate in. So right. I think it's been more. Not, not, not so much that people, uh, you know, countries didn't want Timor to come in, but it's more that how do they manage it and how does Timor manage it? Yeah, um, a, but yeah, but if uh, Cambodia is pushing, that might push it along, and they might be able to have a partial. Well, maybe, but you know, I think uh, it would be good to see Timor in as a member of ASEAN. Right. I always remember uh, some of the previous ASEAN meets which uh, East Timor has attended, and you put in a request with any of the countries and asked to speak to someone from foreign affairs and they'll send out a low-level diplomat. Uh, East Timor sends out its foreign minister, which is, you know, you're sitting down having a cup of tea and discussing its role on the planet, which is uh, most unusual. <laughs> it's also being said that the East Timor issue and its admittance into ASEAN is uh, something of a diversionary tactic because Cambodia has been caught in regards to its relationship with China, which it's been argued that has split ASEAN, particularly over the disputes in the South China Sea. Going back to what you were saying before, do you think ASEAN can actually come to some kind of agreement with China that would end that dispute, or is this just going to go on and on? When I first came to the region in 1989, I was writing about the South China Sea and the disputes with China then, and really nothing's really moved since all those years later. I mean, it's still a top issue for the region, it's issue of concern. I mean, the Philippines have sort of courted with, you know, got... Yeah, they got close, didn't close they? To, yeah. The Philippines saw themselves getting closer to China and they received a lot of money, they received a lot of aid and a lot of promises. But what we've seen only in the last few months, relations have gone back again to being frosty because the Chinese put a lot of boat in the disputed areas of the South China Sea. So that's an issue that's going to keep flaring up and it is one of the major security issues of the region, of course. Right. Another major security issue for the region is Myanmar. And it's it's extraordinary how that country has basically slipped back into civil war. Well, yep. what has happened there is absolutely shocking. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic any way you look at it. The coup that they mounted earlier this year was unjustified and criminal. I mean, the suffering that's inflicted on the people mm-hmm. is just shocking. And... You know, what does the region do about it? You asked earlier yep. about what the region will look like as we come out of COVID in the years ahead. Yep. Well, there's going to be this quite a large country ruled by the military in a brutal way. I can't see anything changing. And countries are going to have to uh, work out how they're going to deal with these military commanders who are corrupt, who aren't looking after their people, have no regard for human rights or um, more concerned about lining their own pockets than the economic health of the country. I'm quite ashamed of Australia's yep. approach to Myanmar. I think Australia's been really, really weak. You know, Canberra has taken a, a back seat, allowed some Australian military commanders to ring their counterparts and try to negotiate, talk, engage with them. But, you know, anybody knows about the history of the people in that regime. It won't work. They're outrageously held, holding 
an Australian, Sean Tunnell, an economist who was in there to, to help the country's economy. He was a chief, was a uh, chief advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi, I believe. An advisor to Suu Kyi, a nicer guy you couldn't meet. And nobody knows where he is. He can't speak to his wife mm. uh, very often. They're facing criminal charges. It's trumped-up charges. It's outrageous. I think that the Australian government, first thing they should do is impose sanctions, economic sanctions, on the military commanders from the top down. Mm-hmm. And, and also impose sanctions on the, the military-linked con- conglomerate that, that dominate the economy. Right. I mean, the, the only way I can see that you can deal with the country's military commanders is to be, to be really tough on them. I went to Burma in 1989 and interviewed the British High Commissioner. At that point, they were knowing he was better than they are now, and asked him, yep. hey, how do you think the West should deal with them? And he said, look, the only thing these people listen to is to kick him in the ass wherever you can. You know, I was taken aback by that, by diplomats saying that, but all these years later, I think that's true. You know I mean? You've really got to play hardball with these people because they're corrupt, they're self-serving, they have trouble listening to anybody, they want to play different countries off against each other. But at the end of the day, the people of Burma are really, really nice people, but they've had a kick in the guts since the 1960s because of the military, and they haven't been able to live the life that they should be able to. I mean, yeah. um, Burma was a country back in the 50s that was one of the food bowls of Asia. You know, it was prosperous and yep. thriving, and the military just run it down. It's a, it's a, it really is a tragic story. One of the stories I'm hearing that Myanmar is experiencing a massive COVID wave at the moment, which is basically not only being underreported, but being unrecorded. And apparently the military went in and arrested the doctor who ran the COVID program, also took away her husband, her two kids and the dog. I mean, it's what are they thinking? I was talking to uh, Lynn O'Donnell on the program last week and as she was saying about the Taliban, these militias, the military, I don't see that much difference between the Taliban and the uh, Tatmadaw sometimes, but they don't do economics, they don't do health, they don't do education, they don't build sewage pipes or install clean water. They don't know how to run a country and they still insist on trying. They're xenophobic. They're not worldly people. They're closeted in their country where they're the big deal. You know, they think that they're everything. But they just look after themselves and not the people. I mean, what's happened to Su Chi is also tragic. It's a tragic story. I mean, going back, the Western media and myself included, other journalists, I think, were consistently read Su Chi wrong right from the time, from the yeah. 19, late 1980s. We wrote the democracy icon and what a yeah. democracy hero and... You know, um, all yeah. those years we wrote glowing stories about her. Then we all turned on to when she um, was protecting the, the military over the brutalisation of the Rohingya. That was basically the human mass human rights violations, which led to a couple of hundred thousand of them fleeing into Bangladesh camps. Right. Um, so we were hard on her then. But then perhaps, you know, looking back with the benefit of heart, and I was as well, wrote stories mm-hmm. that, you know, Sue Chief let everybody down. But looking back, perhaps we should have been pointing the finger at actually who was doing all those atrocities and killing and, and, and attacking the Rohingya, which is the military. Um, right. So Sue Chief was a face of it, and I think she was weak, and she went across to defend, to defend the military yeah. uh, internationally. So she was the face of it. But at the end of the day, the ones who stand and condemned and who should be put on trial for mass atrocities are the military commanders. And, of course, that includes General Ong Mun 
Clang, who is currently uh, the self-installed leader of Myanmar, and they are under investigation by the United Nations following uh, a Gambian call in the uh, international courts. As an Australian journalist and very much a part of the international press corps, do you see much differences between the approach to the job? Is there much of a difference in terms of how people approach their stories at an international level as opposed to the way the Australians operate? Well, I think the Australians journalists are foreign correspondents anyway. Um, yeah who come out into the, the region and the US and Europe can hold their own with the best of the British or the Americans. So I think we're brought up uh, to be highly competitive and to basically get the story right and to be mm-hmm. fair, balanced and accurate. So I think we come out and, and can hold our head up high in the in the way we report internationally. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there are enough Australian foreign correspondents around. I mean, they're consistent. The uh, organisation that sends them out is the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, but the newspapers have, over the years, pulled back on the number of correspondents they've got based overseas because as things have gone online and the, uh, the ads have dropped away and the money just hasn't been there. So it's a shame yeah. that big newspapers companies probably got half the number of correspondents across the world than they used to. So that's a real shame. Right. Where were you when you found out that you uh, had been awarded an OAM? And were you surprised? Oh, I was very surprised. I got a letter from the Governor-General's office. I was being considered for an OAM, and if I got one, whether I'd accept and ask me to reply. So I accepted, and then mm. the, the confirmation came a, a couple of weeks uh, before it publicly announced, and I was sworn to secrecy until it was announced. But, I, no, I was really I was really, uh, really gobsmacked because I had no inkling of it, and, um, I mean, you know, I really you know, regarded as not so much an award for me, but for the, for the people who have helped me along the way, contacts, particularly sources and people I've worked with, right. uh, especially especially at the Melbourne Age, because, you know, I had um, 46 years at the age and I just, um, it really is a great paper. It still is. I mean, still, they're still, you know, they don't have the resources that they used to, you know, for most of my time there. But there's very, very excellent, outstanding journalism every day and brave journalism. And yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I really take my head up to people at the age and my sources and people I've worked with and say this is an award for them. I mean, that, that might sound pretty, pretty, uh, you know, um, good and <laughs> two-shoot, but it's, that's the way I feel. I really feel that it's not so much an award for me. It's, it's an award for journalism. And I think there's not enough... Uh, Quite often, journalism doesn't get the the credit that it's due. It right. um, people want to attack you all the time. You know, people want to attack the messenger. So, you've got to stand your ground. It's and it's it's not an easy industry, but so it's great to see journalism recognised. Right, uh, the uh, attacks on journalists, particularly over the last 10, 15 years, has certainly escalated. We look at what has happened to colleagues, particularly in Iraq, where you were embedded with US forces, what followed with ISIS and the Taliban, how they kind of uh, reinvented themselves and I think became a damn sight nastier, but also the attacks that are coming out of China, particularly in cyberspace, it's become a lot harder. How do you see that now versus 20, 30 years ago? And given uh, that uh, you are mentoring for ABC in Australia, what's your advice for... uh, 
young journalists heading out into the field these days? There's only only one advice, just balance fair and accurate. Make sure you get the story right, don't get yourself sued and try and get it first and get an exclusive and all those things are still the same. Mm. But it's completely changed. I mean, in the old days, working for print, daily newspaper I used to go off and maybe not file a story for 10 days and work up a big story or a series of stories and not worrying about publishing every day now you know my last few years in uh, in Bangkok for the age of the Sydney Morning Herald um, you really have to be on call 24 hours a day because as soon as something's breaking they want it online right you don't have the luxury of going out and researching the story getting quotes from people getting color getting the, the facts right Mm-hmm. You know, you've got an editor down the line wanting an online right now of breaking story. So the time that you took researching, you're on the phone filing and then, then you've got to try and quickly get another update and file again. That's affected the depth of reporting, I think. So if I was in Bangkok and say something happened in the other side of town, a bomb, for instance, and when it goes off at a temple, it has happened there. Um, mm-hmm. In the old days, I'd just jump in a taxi and get down there as soon as I could. Mm-hmm. and spend a few hours reporting it and have it wrapped up when I walk away. But with online, you've really got to think about, well, will I get in a taxi? I'll be away from where I'm filing. Stuck uh, in traffic. I won't be able to monitor traffic. I'm not, I, I won't be able to monitor Twitter, Facebook and all the other social media where big bomb blast in Bangkok or anywhere else, for instance, immediately you start getting social media, start coming across with photographs, eyewitness comments, becomes all there in front of you. You can pick it up, but it's not as good as job as actually going down and doing it yourself. So that, yeah. that's been the, the big change in journalism that I've seen. I think it's a, it's a change that's not good for journalism. The other thing that I'm really worried about is the impact of social media and and, the, and some of the conspiracy theories that are emanating on social media were quite outrageous. And people see these things on social media, you know, quite outrageous conspiracies, and and then start to believe them. And um, yeah. some of the things that people come out with and say, well, that was true. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, you know, it's not true. The people who are putting this stuff, these conspiracy theories on social media, are never brought to count because. You know, in a newspaper, there's layers and layers of fact-checking, including by lawyers, and nothing is put up without it being thoroughly checked and believed to be true. But but that doesn't happen on social media. And it's a a trend that I think that governments should have have a way of... There's a really inaccurate, dangerous material being on social media, being able to uh, force people to delete it, at the very least. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think the most recent example of that was the just-past anniversary for the Tiananmen Square massacres in Beijing in 1989, and there was a plethora of um, pro-communist party people who were coming out and just denying that it ever happened. And mind you, when Tiananmen Square did happen, we all watched it on television. We all saw it. And very rarely, as a journalist, do we use the word we. But when you have a global audience witnessing it firsthand, and then 30 years later, the argument is, oh, it didn't happen. And they've just flooded social media with these kinds of things. Now, if you're a Holocaust denier, as in uh, what happened with the Jews in World War Two, some countries you can go to jail for that. Exactly. And the other example is COVID. I mean, some yep. of the countries, some third world countries, developing countries that are struggling to get people vaccinated, there's a lot of hesitancy because people read these conspiracy theories online and believe them. Like, for instance, in uh, PNG, 
Uh, mm-hmm. They've had a real problem with trying to convince people to get vaccinated. They haven't got enough vaccinations anyway, but they had trouble, even the one, the amount that they had to get people vaccinated, including nurses at one of the big hospitals, because these conspiracy theories went around about witches and all sorts of, you know, unbelievable things that are totally false, but people come to believe it. And I think it says a lot about which mastheads, which media outlets do people trust? And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people out there know who the BBC is, the New York Times. A lot of those newspapers are behind paywalls. And if you're, okay, a nurse in Papua New Guinea, in terms of who is credible and who you listen to, is kind of lost in this sort of wash of everybody trying to be important online. Yeah. The online world has challenged the mainstream media in terms of importance, where people get their information from and what's credible. And much of that too is just basically self-published people, <laughs> people proffering ideas and opinions from their backyard garage when they don't really know what they're talking about. How does the mainstream media deal with that in terms of what we're saying about getting credible information out there in regards to COVID-19? but it gets lost in this sea of disinformation and misinformation. I don't like the term fake news, but certainly propaganda. How does the mainstream media deal with that? How do journalists deal with that? Well, I think at this point, they've just got to do good journalism and keep coming up with good stories and hope that people will tune to them. One of the problems is mainstream media is guided, well, commercial media has to get uh, their journalism paid for, so they put their journalism behind paywalls. And uh, the ordinary punter out there are very reluctant to pull out their credit card and sign up for a monthly subscription to The Age or Sydney Morning Herald or The New York Times or whatever it is or wherever they are. So that's a problem. So you get sort of people who, who are prepared to pay and are reading the, reading the stuff, but they're probably not the ones you want. The ones who have been influenced by these wild conspiracy and theories and propaganda and, and um, a self-serving crap your school kids and your, you know, your younger people mainly mm-hmm. uh, or your potential crackpots who are vulnerable to this sort of stuff. So they're not bragging out their credit card signing up to reputable news organisations. So this is why organisations like the BBC in the UK and, um, and ABC in Australia are so important and that they're funded by the taxpayer and, you know, and they do have the resources. But, you know, that's just one outlet. Right. And I will point out that both news organisations have independent charters, which means they are not state controlled. I'm seeing a lot of that come out of China at the moment. And it's like, Jesus, you know, has anyone actually listened or read copy coming out of, say, the BBC or the ABC, for that matter, and seen how critical it is of their governments? Uh, It just doesn't stop this sort of um, trying to blacken reputations and yelling at the world, we know what we're talking about, and it just doesn't stop. No, I think that's right. Look at the ABC, the the, the coalition government in Australia is Mm -hmm. one of the fiercest critic ministers in the government are the fiercest critics of the ABC. They're holding the government to account on across a number of issues. Right. Uh, and, you know, not pulling punches. So they're independent. They cop flat from the government and let's hope talk that the government will continue to cut their budget and let's hope that's that's not the case. Without an official independent ABC, the Australia will be a lot poorer place. Okay. COVID-19 is done and dusted and you can catch a plane out of Darwin. Where would you go? 
Well, what a relief that would be. Imagine, you know, being able to go to an airport and jump on a plane and, and go somewhere. Right. Gee, it's been so long. My passion is the region, so I, I plan to work up a book on the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where I'll be heading. But I can imagine a lot of Australians being biting into the bit to, to get overseas after they've been stuck here. Well, I think it's going to be another 12 months before that's going to happen. So I was certainly well into next year. I can't see it happening right. this year where, you know, at the moment, Australians aren't allowed to leave. You actually need an, uh, a reason for going overseas and you must apply and, uh, and get permission. So it's just yeah. an extraordinary time. I don't think, I'm not sure whether any other country has that condition, but you know, that's the case here. We just, uh, our government says we can't go unless you've got a re- really good reason to, to be going. Now, that doesn't include family bereavements or family issues. So yeah. there's a lot of many, many Australian families who are going through heartbreak because they haven't been able to uh, to travel either into Australia or out to uh, on, on family business. And it's not just uh, holidays, been mm. such serious issue mm-hmm. for many, many Australians. Are you getting itchy feet for a story? I mean, when you're sitting back there in Australia and you've spent so many years up here, is there any one story that you're thinking to yourself, geez, I'd like to be there right now? Well, yeah, well, I'd just like to be there. The, the, the big story is COVID. Another big story is China. And I don't think you can get a feel for it unless you're up there doing it. So they're the two stories. And I really, really feel for the people of uh, Miami and, and what's going on there is just shocking. And I mean, th- those borders are closed and nobody's getting in there. There've been very few journalists who have reported out of there. I've got an Australian colleague who was basically on the run there. You know, the, the authorities mm-hmm. are looking looking for him, and it's you know I really worry about it. But he can't go about his job reporting what's going on, so that's closed off. But a story like what's happening in Miami needs to be told to the world. It needs cameras. It needs uh, people who are observing and writing stories about what's going on because it's just absolutely shocking appalling behaviour by an armed force against the civilian population. So that's one story that I wouldn't be able to do it, but that's where I'd like to be. I'd like to be bringing that story to people and ramming home to the Australian government that this is just not acceptable. And we've seen in so many conflicts like Timor in 99, it wasn't until the the atrocities and the bloodshed that was being inflicted on ordinary Timorese by the pro-Indonesian militia at that time that, it wasn't until that started to turn up on CNN and uh, the ABC and Channel 7 and Channel 9 in Australia that the government started to react. I don't think John Howard would have sent Australian troops into Timor in September 99 unless there was an out, outcry by the Australian public about what was going on. Right. So it, it needs... Governments react. That, you know, governments are poor and leading. They'll react only when there's a public outcry and the public mood is for them to do so. I think it's so important that uh, the story of Miami is told across the world and the Australian government's been weak in its response and I think that's partly because the average Australian is not seeing what's going on on TV every night because there aren't journalists there. Right. It doesn't mean that the atrocities aren't happening. They are happening, but they're not being reported and so these people in the military commanders are basically getting away with murder. Quite literally. And the ASEAN response has been, well, disappointing, I think, to say the least. And what you were saying about governments reacting, it's a sad state of affairs when a government needs to see the people react to an atrocity before it does something. When people are yelling for years before 
do something now kind of leaves you wondering where is their foreign policy what are they thinking and just how important is self-interest like don't upset the apple cart we're trading we're making money let's not get these messy little civil rights disputes get in the way yeah well the response from ASEAN has always been typically weak but it comes back to bite these countries because it's destabilizing the region it is indeed yeah i mean as it goes on there's all sorts of consequences like refugees pouring across borders and you know movement of arms and all, all sorts of ramifications come down to these countries because they don't stand up for what's right they don't stand up Right. Uh, when a civilian population is getting brutalised by a military that overthrew a, a democratically elected government on the basis of lies and because they didn't like the result, they decided that they'd take back power. You're talking before about uh, tourism in Thailand and the post-COVID world. Well, if the Thais really want to go back there, now they have a civil war on their doorstep. And on the other side of the border in Cambodia... You have a government that maintains there's a constant attempt by uh, Cambodians abroad to topple it. But if you are a tourist with money in Europe and you see these headlines, why would you go to Thailand? They're not going to necessarily differentiate between Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia. All they know is it's in the middle of these hotspots and nothing's being done about it. Why would you take your kids there? That's right. I mean, people aren't going to spend money and jump in on a plane and go into places where they think that that has been behind or is supporting an illegal armed activity that brutalising the civilian population. So word gets back that tourism will be affected. Right. So it's in these countries' interests in so many ways to to support Myanmar coming out of this uh, era of military brutality. Yeah, and that might be a generational thing too. Yeah, I, I, I think it... The, the armed groups that have seemed to be sort of getting together a bit more in the light of what's happened since early in the year, I don't think they're going to be able to march in and overthrow the military anytime soon. I think that's a really, really very long time in the future for them to be able to get up to that sort of force. So I, I think that, you know, we're in for a long haul with Miami unless the military commanders there wake up to themselves and say, listen, you know, OK, we hear what the world's saying and we're, we're going to uh, fix it up. Right. <laughs> Yeah, let's do a deal again. Yeah, and good (laughs) luck with that. I don't think that'll happen. Indeed. And on that note, Lindsay Murdoch, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, look, it's been a real pleasure, Luke, and it's always great talking with you, and I really think that people should know that you've stuck it out up in the region during COVID. You're one of the very few foreign correspondents who did, and uh, you ought to be congratulated for uh, for sticking it out and um, doing a great job in the region for, for your listeners. Thank you. Lindsay Murdoch, thanks very much and good night. Goodbye.